Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Tammy. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Um, I am on my third, third cup of coffee this morning, so I am well uh, first cup of coffee was coffee was out on the back porch, and my second one was out there too. And now my third one's right here in my hand, and I am very much looking forward to this conversation. You and I had an opportunity to talk a couple of weeks ago, I think, following some exchanges on social media, and um, it sounds like we've got some mutual interest um, in a very specific area. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. But before we dive into that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm a little envious. I only had two cups of coffee, but I will do my best to keep up with you. (laughs) Uh, So, yes. um, So, by way of introduction, I would say, with the exception of a very brief time as an adjunct professor, I have spent my career in the development space, but specifically in nonprofits. So, 
titles aside, I have been an executive director for a national nonprofit. I've been a development director. I've been a program director. So it's always come back to nonprofits. I cannot stay away. And so I often tell people I like to stand at that intersection, if you will, of creativity. I love driving creative solutions and community. So I love that space where we can look at the community. What community is it? Is it the community of of donors? Is it the internal community of staff members? So I really like standing at that intersection. And you're also doing some um, graduate work or postgraduate work. Tell me about that too. Yes. So because I worked so long in that kind of corporate nonprofit space, I really saw a lot of value. We can dive deeper on that in the specific training and development space, this idea of this growth mindset in the workplace. So it really launched my interest into getting a little more experience in that field, in that arena, if you will. So the program I'm doing is actually a master's in educational technology, which doesn't quite cover what I'm talking about, but it is getting down to the nitty gritty of workforce learning and development. Yeah. So I guess you're, I, um, anybody who says uh, growth mindset has going to be Carol Dweck fan or is there anybody else yeah. who's talking? Is anybody who talks about that whole eye concept better than she does? I don't think so. I mean, it's so interesting because I'm in other groups that are talking constantly about what can we do and that it's always that reference point. So I think you're dead yeah. on there. Yeah. 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 Well, Tammy, we ask our guests to come on with a big idea or bold opinion as it relates to the fundraising profession. And, um, and I've got to say they're getting better and better. Um, <laughs> you know, 200 episodes ago, um, they had to, yes. they had to get kind of warmed up and they started to be, I, I think that's what some people who are maybe skeptical of what we're doing here don't understand is that the conversations are actually getting better in the questions that we're sort of posing the big ideas, the opinions that we're sort of wrestling with are getting better and better. They're becoming much more rich and going deeper, I think. Um, so, uh, what do you got for us today? So I don't know if it's big. I think it should be. Um, I think the big idea is that in my experience, I'm going to go back for a second to get to that big idea. I worked yeah. for a long time in, in as a development manager. And I'm going to use the word development probably more than advancement because that was my world. Sure. But I worked for a long time on what we would probably or um, short-term fundraising, so a lot of event-based fundraising or annual giving or program, a lot of grant-funded you know, fundraising. And what I noticed was that, this is pre-pandemic, I think that's really important to underscore, is that despite the fact that I had some really successful fundraisers, long-term, these were not entry-level employees, um, yeah. suddenly when the shift started happening and we shifted the focus from those kind of short term to more of that long term major gift approach and some other programs, I witnessed this unusual, I don't know what I can call it, Jason, but it was almost like this, I'm not a psychologist, but it was like symptoms of imposter syndrome. I saw a lot of employees going from this very confident mindset of, hitting all their numbers, you know, getting to those goals year over year over year. But when we launched a new longer term platform, there was a lot, a big lack in confidence. And I, I include myself. I went through a transition period of going in the sponsor driven world to major gifts. Idea. And we certainly can talk about strategies that we're seeing in this, but my big idea is more in the area what are we doing in, at these companies? 
nonprofits to support the staff. The, the staff that have skills are experiencing stuff. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, yes, I've raised money every year, but now I have these new KPIs. And I don't know if I know how to have conversation with a major gift prospect. Or I don't know if I know how to think three to five years out on a campaign. So my big idea is more about what can we do internally at the organizations to support. And I'm a lucky one. The last organization I worked for did a great job of supporting me. They aligned me with a mentor, and we can dive into that more. But that's my big idea is before we can really go into these new campaigns and this new mode of fundraising beyond the pandemic, I'm really curious to explore that a little more, what we're doing internally in the workforce. Okay. So I'm wishing that it, I've got this enormous bookshelf over my head here and I can't reach for it, but, and I've talked about his book a number of times. It's, it's not in the mess surrounding me here. David Epstein in his book range talks about the cult of early specialization And it's the idea that somehow or another in sort of our modern workplace economy, how do we develop professionals, et cetera, et cetera. He's not talking about fundraisers by any stretch of the imagination. He actually starts with athletes. But we've developed this sort of this cult phenomenon that sort of specializes too early, too, too soon in the career. And I have every time I pick that up and every time I run into it, I just translate it into the way that we train up fundraisers. And I think this is what you're getting at. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we train these people up. We train these people up to be very comfortable in highly technical work uh, that actually raises, in some cases, a hell of a lot of money. But then as soon as we need to sort of transition them away from what we would traditionally call transactional fundraising, which is a lot of times what we're complaining about, right? We're oftentimes saying, I don't want this to be transactional. I don't want this to be transactional. But at the very point that we don't, we have the opportunity to not make it transactional. We don't have the confidence. It sounds like, I mean, I've seen it. It sounds like you've seen it in real time. We don't have the confidence to actually not make it transactional. Yeah, you, you've hit it on the head. And it's, it's interesting. I love that you referenced that book and the fact that it doesn't have to apply just to the fundraising space. Um, yeah. That could be a whole other podcast. But, but I will say that <laughs> absolutely, I think, what, again, what I was witnessing, and I, I think, you know, looking back, I probably witnessed this over a long part of my career. It was just more fresh in recent years as we were moving into this new space. And then the pandemic hit. And <laughs> so that changed yeah. things up quite a bit. But there, yeah, there's something really interesting. You're right. I know for me, I can only speak for, for my experience in that realm. I really was. It was a very transactional world for me for a long time. I, I kind of cut my teeth um, on event-based fundraising. So a lot of outdoor, like name a 5K, right? Um, I was probably yeah. touching a 5K somewhere. And what I've noticed is that, and that's just one you know example, but you know, we we got really good at that specialization, right? There's a certain cycle, it's annual, you plan XYZ steps to get there, you get X number of dollars to raise and sponsorship, you can build, you know, there's lots of science behind how you build those. And yes, you can be a specialist in that. 
and a lot of us were. But yes, as soon as we had to change the the format, and not just 5K events. I mean, I've seen it lots of nonprofits, those indoor dinner galas, the silent auctions. Um, Even at my daughter's school, I was on their fundraising committee for a while. We were raising money through a silent auction. They're fine, but what happens when organizations need to think more long-range, long-term plans, sustainability, um, you know, the legacy programs that a lot of us are used to, it isn't one size fits all as far as the person in those fundraising shoes. And that was something that I had to first recognize in myself. And like I said, I was very lucky. I had an amazing group of mentors around me. I was assigned someone um, in my last job where I was actually able, and it didn't take long. I was able to go with a person who'd been doing major gifts for their whole career And it just took a few meetings where I I went with them to these prospect meetings and just witnessed the conversation. And then the light bulb went on and I realized what I needed to do. Now, for me, that might have been faster than some because I've been doing other work for so long. Uh But just having the opportunity to witness it in action, and that's to me a big part of what I think we need to pay attention to is, and this is a terrible analogy, but you mentioned sports, so I'm going to go there for a minute. <laughs> you know, I think about, you know, uh, swimmers, right? We yeah. all learn to swim. We, we learn, we start on the shallow end of the pool, right? Um, we yeah. get our specialty there, right? We, we learn to do the doggy paddle. We get really good at the doggy paddle, right? And then we learn to float on our back and eventually we get the confidence, right? We're there. The second we go to the deep end, even though we have those skills, we know we've been trained to do them, we know how to float on our back. If we get out of breath, we can just float. A lot of times we get in that deep end and suddenly we feel that, nope, I can't swim here. I can't feel the, the, the pool bottom. I can't possibly do this work. And that's a dramatic example. But that's what I, what I was witnessing is that these otherwise very confident employees with amazing, some of them came from sales background who could talk to yeah. anyone yeah. Um, but when the long term, just because it was a long term gift in front of them, suddenly there was this sense of, "I'm a deer in headlights. I, 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 I don't know what to do with this." And so, yeah, that's so, that's right. That's what I'm seeing. So, were they free? It sounds like they were freezing up. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they were freezing up at the point at which, if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, so you've got this team of fundraisers that you're supervising, leading, directing, coaching. And it sounds like they're freezing up at the very point at which you're sitting across the lunch table from a donor needing to have a meaningful conversation that perhaps they don't know where it's necessarily going to go. Am I, am, am I hearing that correctly? Right. Or even just donors they know, but shifting from that short term, they've been a donor for a specific program for a long time every year. And now it's a new conversation. It's a new type of program. Yeah. And it was as though they were from a stranger. And all the skills we have at having conversations, suddenly there's just service about how to talk to a person they already know. So both with the new prospect, but also with prospect or people that they had already in their, um, in their world. So it was just very fascinating to me. That, so is yeah. it the point when you and I talked about this, you and I, cause you and I briefly talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we, when we agreed to have this conversation, 
it, it was it because this is fast. This is fascinating. That's what I told you a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this. this. is absolutely fascinating. I don't know that I've heard a fundraising leader sort of articulate it as, as well as you did when you were you and I were talking before. So I'm eager to pull it all out of you here. It, was it at the point at which one of the one of the critiques that I have long said and heard, and you've probably had me heard me say this, and this is probably what I shared with you. The, the point at which the fundraiser is now expected to sort of transition away from what they can't sell anymore, there's nothing left to sell. So when I think of everything that happens in what I call lane one, so we at, at Responsive, we have three lanes. And in lane one, there's a shitload of stuff that they can basically sell. And they can sell stuff night and day. They can sell sponsorships. They can sell you know, they can sell. And it, and so it becomes very transactional, but they can also sort of, for example, especially if they came from the sales world, they can feel like they're salespeople. But there's a point at which the relationship has to transition away from the place where you're actually feeling like you have anything to sell. Um, and, and certainly if you're going long-term, so you're saying to the donor, we want a more meaningful gift. So by, but when I say the word meaningful, I mean anything that sort of requires you to sort of get out of the box of having something, something tangible, even if it's relatively intangible to sell them like a sponsorship, for example, is a, is a key example. You know, you're sponsoring a tee at the golf tournament, for example, at the point at which you don't have that to sell to people, I feel I, I, I sense that they sort of freeze up. And, and, and that's also the point at which, Fundraising becomes truly, truly hinges on the relationship that you have, the rapport, the trust, the familiarity that you have, and that donor's commitment to the long-term, you know, advancement of whatever your mission is. Am I right? Am I put? Am I piecing all this together? You are absolutely, and that's exactly what I thought was so interesting because. It was, to me, it was more this, I guess, scaling up. It's, it's a sense of it's no longer that tangible. We have an event with a date in mind. And yes. then after that, we do our you know, performance proof of impact. We do all these very clear-cut, timeline-driven items. Yes. And you know, it's done. It's done in less than a year, right? So, yeah, this idea of long range and having what does conversation look like? I guess that's probably what I was noticing more than anything is because it is a different conversation. Let's not fool ourselves. You know, we can say all day, oh, if you're good at having conversation, you've got this. But it is different. Um, And this idea of developing the relationship, because that's what a lot of us talk about in this space, right? We talk about building relationships, building trust finding someone's passion and desire with a specific need. So a lot of people I work with, they understood that, but it was purely through a tangible item, like a sponsorship. Um, in the previous okay, okay. job I had, it was similar. It was also a sponsorship. It was tied to a performance, very visible, very, it's, here's the night of the show, your name's up on there. You know, it's very simple. So, yes. Okay. So I'm delighted that I'm having a... Um conversation with a woman you're not a you're not a woman of color but you're you're close enough white guys talking about this um (laughs) but you know throughout the pandemic for example we've been having these conversations a lot of the critique has been that fundraising in many ways has been too oriented towards charity for example and we need to get it more oriented towards justice and we need to be able to raise money for whatever the cause happens to be we need to be willing to sort of 
be willing to raise money in ways that sort of address the systemic underlying problems. For example, whether we're talking about systemic racism or we're talking about, you know, women being marginalized and not being, you know, appropriately and fairly, uh, you know, compensated and given the opportunities that a white fellow like me might be offered and so forth and so forth. Um, a lot of this is is oriented towards people who are in marginalized places in our world. And what what occurs to me is is that and what continues continuously comes up when we start start to scratch the surface in these conversations is is I can't as a fundraiser I can't get to those places if I can't get past what you're talking about. Does that make sense? Like, Absolutely. I, yes. I can't address a system. I can't compel a donor. Whoever my donor happens to be, I can't compel my super rich, affluent, I don't care where in the world they live. I'm not going to compel that person to literally address an underlying systemic problem if all I can do is sell them a sponsorship on the green at the golf tournament. I'm going to have to have some very nonlinear, ambiguous I'm sorry, sir. I can't guarantee you where this $50,000 over the next five years is going to go because we're going to put it to work and there may be some exploratory and experiential sort of components to this, but that's the only way we're going to figure out how to actually address the underlying problems of what we're doing. Is that essentially the conversation you needed these people to have and they basically froze up and couldn't? It, it might be. It's been a while in that, when I was in that scenario, but I've seen it in like other places more recently. But I think it's yeah. that there is a certain – and I'm, first of all, I'm so grateful to have conversation like this. So let me just put that out there. Um, <laughs> okay. yes, as, as, as a woman in the, in the industry, it is. It's interesting. Um, I was on another call uh, or a webinar recently um, in the fundraising space, and we were talking a lot just more about – you know, who are the donors? Who are we looking at these days? And a lot of the conversation turned to this, that for so long, you're right, there is a very um, kind of stereotypical um, approach, if if I can say that, that there is a lot of like, there is, it's a lot of like these higher level donors sit, kind of check the certain box, right? And so how do we shift that attention? Because we're not going to have those donors with us forever, and nor should we. We need to start having conversation with a new generation, we need to have conversation that absolutely goes beyond selling that sponsorship for that little spot on the golf course, for sure. Yes. Um, and so I don't know if it was as big as that at the time, um, that sure. particular scenario I was sharing, but certainly that was the beginning probably of what I'm now seeing more of. I'm working right now, I'm consulting for a smaller nonprofit at the moment. And some of the things we're doing, it's the same thing. We're so, it's almost like having to recondition our brain a little bit around how we did things before, which was so transactional and how ultimately, if I may say so, how freeing it is when we let go of that mindset, when we let go of that only transactional mindset it can be so much more freeing. I, I just see a lot of struggle, a lot of energy being put into that when if we can just frankly spend more time internally at organizations and having these kinds of conversations around how do I get past my mindset about I only succeed when I'm doing transactions versus I have great skill and I just need to have a little bit of guidance on how to transfer that skill to a bigger picture for the long term. So I am excited about opportunities. And 
I guess one silver lining in this pandemic is that it has really forced a lot of organizations, nonprofit and otherwise, to really reevaluate you know this this notion of business as usual, right? Uh, it's yeah. not, and and we we have. But I, rather than focusing on the negative, this like worry and the challenge, I see this as wide open, blank canvas. We've got a lot of opportunity to really explore conversation. But if I were okay. to say so how this, to do it, it's internal. <laughs> okay, so this conversation is probably the best. So as I'm as I'm having these conversations, I always start thinking, okay, what's the headline? How are we going to sort of title this conversation? How do we sort of sum up what's being talked about? I think what you're talking about, Tammy, and, and I talk about this in the forthcoming book, I think, but, but I, do, I don't have the benefit of this conversation. I wish I did because um, I would have put it in the book. Um, I think you're talking about, and it's interesting that you started, and I want to go back there because you started with an imposter syndrome. The point at which we need our donors, let's remind ourselves that, we're, the, that the, the, the fundraiser you started to describe here a few minutes ago is sometimes inclined to sort of hinge their thinking on sales tactics, right? Nothing right. wrong with sales, but that's just sort of what we're relying on, an underlying assumption that we're doing sales in some ways. The other thing that we're talking about oftentimes saying when we're talking about this type of fundraising is we're oftentimes complaining complaining back at the office or with our colleagues when we go to the AFP conference. We're complaining about the fact that it feels so transactional. And when you look at, but what we don't acknowledge is, is that behind those two words is the underlying assumption that the donor is one and the same with the consumer. And so the donor is being perceived as a consumer. And what I think I'm hearing you describe is that at the point at which, which is some of the language, which is some of the language I use in the forthcoming book, at the point at which you needed your team to move away from seeing the donor as a consumer and you needed to see them as a citizen, which generally is more outwardly focused and long-term focused. At the point at which the donor needed to be a citizen and not a consumer, they froze up and felt like they were an imposter. I think you, yes, I do think that is what it was. And thank you for finally putting words to, to my head on that because that is, and you know, what do they say? Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. So yeah, there's, there's that hindsight. It's twenty twenty now. Thank you. Um, but yes, it was. And it, and I want to go back and add one piece to that because I also don't want to forget that um, within organizations, as we shift and have to refocus our energy and effort on what we're doing in the fundraising space, the employees that are tasked with this and the boots on the ground, they are being given these new KPIs that are often tied to performance reviews too. Sure. So I don't want to forget that piece of it is I think sometimes that maybe, and again, I'm, I'm throwing words out there as though I'm actually a psychologist. So I want to be really mindful that I'm not suggesting true syndrome. That is a true condition sure. that I can't even dive into, but the symptoms that I was witnessing kind of made me think of that. But I want to say that I'm wondering out loud here if sometimes internally when we are moving away from the transactional type campaigns that you and I discussed and are familiar with, when yeah. we move away from that and internally within the departments, are we not creating some of those symptoms because we're not 
creating the proper transition for those employees. So that's just something I'm very passionate about in my my new world of research is how do we better train and get out of that specialization we talked about in the beginning? Because you're right, there was definitely that sense of I now have imposter symptoms because suddenly I'm being asked to do something that I don't even know how to close. (laughs) And that's a big term we hear a lot in fundraising is close that sponsorship, close that gift and that sense of urgency that often comes with that. And that I think is what I was witnessing is that sense of, I don't know how to be anything but urgent to hit a number and close. And this notion of slowing it down, being okay with this new approach to a campaign that it might not happen overnight. It may not happen this year or even next year. But this idea of thinking long-term is not the same as thinking in transactions. I don't know. I don't, I, tell me if I'm wrong here. I don't know if it's the um, long-term, short-term that, that had your people freezing up. I'm wondering if it's transitioning between um, the substantial, uh, the linear, the linear straight to the sell them, sell them the sponsorship sort of direct route versus having an ambiguous conversation that they don't know where it's going to go. The exploratory conversation, even salespeople know, even really talented salespeople know that some of your convert, especially high end complex deals that, you know, if, if you're, if you're some extraordinary widget builder out there in the world and and your customer is paying, you know, not, not 10 or 15 bucks for whatever you sell, but perhaps thousands and hundreds of thousands, if not millions for whatever you're selling them, these are pretty complex deals. And it sounds to me like at the point at which the thing, the situation became more complex and there's two human beings that are basically having to navigate each other's expectations. I don't know if it's the short term or the long term necessarily that had them freezing up. I think it's the complexity. It's the complexity of what it is to be doing and 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 I'm thinking about a woman, um, Patricia Shaw. Patricia Shaw is a woman who just who wrote a book a number of years ago about ch- uh, changing the nature of conversations to allow conversations to become sort of the centerpiece and the legitimate uh, the legitimate medium for which we do our work. And I think it was actually th- this is actually along the lines of some of the conversation I had with the previous guest that I think triggered this conversation with you. We haven't allowed the conversation itself to become a legitimate role in our work. And consequently, we've got to sell them something because that gives us this, this so that we've sort of constructed something. Well, just having a conversation with that donor over coffee at the, at the, at the, you know, just me saying to a development officer, go to the coffee shop, have a meaningful conversation that you can then continue to have if it doesn't necessarily close on a gift. That doesn't give the boss enough sense of control. Right. So I want to underscore something you said because you're right. It's not just the long term. You're absolutely right about that. That was definitely part of what the conversation, definitely thinking more three, five-year plans. So that part of it that made them go, what do you mean three to five years? Because we're used to a one-year annual event. 
Um, and it's true in the current place where I'm consulting. It's very um, based on the season, you know. But one thing that also I want to kind of add to that, so that is absolutely correct, Jason. It, it is less the, the long term as the challenge. It's more of the conversation and yeah. what that looks like. And that's where I was so fortunate that I had some amazing directors I got to shadow and mentor and I saw it in action. But the other thing I just want to say that this is a little little piece of this is that What's interesting about transactional, and this was something we talked a lot about and why my team, everyone was so successful, is that a lot of those conversations, when we're talking sponsorship, for example, yeah, the place where that money is coming from is often less emotional. And we talk about meaningful conversation. Yes. Um, a lot of times it's just purely, it's in the marketing budget and they're, they have a place to kind of host something locally and there's a, a good feeling of supporting a local charity and getting some advertising out of it. And so I think that's also where some of the struggle was. It goes from, like you said, tangible, but also it's no longer when you're having these other conversations for a long-term um, goal, it moves from a very um, unemotional decision maker to we're talking Uh-oh. personal money. And I think that's the other piece of it that I, I didn't earlier indicate that I, I was seeing. So I think that is where some of, yeah, the, uh, that feeling of, <laughs> I don't know, you know, they, it's easy to talk about sponsorship because it's comfortable. It's not per- so personal. So is this, okay. <laughs> yeah. So th- this is the fascinating place in, in the podcast. So there's always about a, we're at 30 minutes here. So we got 15 minutes to talk about this. We don't have to limit this to a single question. Okay, so one of the statistics that's getting meaner, uh, scarier and scarier is that we cannot renew the first gift, right? right? They say that we can't, like seven, there's some, uh, recently I heard a statistic, I think our friends over at Virtuous or somebody are talking about 70% of the first time gifts don't get renewed. In some cases, it's not nearly as dramatic. But when you think about what happens between the first gift and the second gift, you're talking about the nature of the relationship fundamentally changing, Yes. It's kind of like the first date versus the second date. It's kind of like the nature of any relation. It's kind of like the relationship you and I are forming here, right? So we we had our first, we, we exchanged a relatively shallow exchange on social media. Then we transitioned to a phone call. Then I goobered up and messed up last week. And now we're actually having a substantial conversation that we're, we're relatively invested in now. And we don't right. know where it's going to go tomorrow. And I think that's what happens between the first and the second gift. And I honestly don't think there's enough people in our consulting role. So you're, you and I are both in consulting postures. I don't think there's enough of us in our posture saying, look, once the first gift is received, which is in some ways sort of what is still happening at that deer in the headlights, imposter syndrome is triggered sort of moment that you're talking about. At the point at which the nature of the relationship is fundamentally changed, the game is over with all this transactional stuff. Yeah, You're in a relationship with this person, and your fundraisers are going to have to know how to navigate that. And if you can't keep them on the payroll, you're never going to renew your donors, and you're never going to keep your fundraisers around. You're basically saying, Tammy, that... You're basically explaining inadvertently why they left their jobs too. It's the the same reason they can't make this transition between the, the the this transition you're describing is the same reason that six months later they quit their jobs because it's shallow work. 
Yeah, it's, it is so fascinating. I mean, I would love, uh, there's got to be a research study out there. And if there isn't, you and I. You're going to do it. We're just going to stir you up to do it. (laughs) Because I, I keep thinking about the pandemic. I know there's a lot of talk about the pandemic caused these challenges. And I am going to say on record here on this podcast with all your (laughs) listeners, Jason, these were happening before the pandemic. I, I really think, um, some of these, I, I say challenges, but they really are opportunities. But uh, yeah, I think this this notion of what do I do if I'm not working in a transactional space and I have the pressure to, I love my, like, for example, me, I love the organizations I've worked for. I've worked with some great nonprofits. Um, and every time I've had to think about, you know, closing the sponsorship, closing the gift, there is that pressure and there's a good sense of pressure, right? If you wouldn't be in fundraising, if you didn't want a little bit of that tension, that's helpful because it drives your, your work. But yeah. yes, there is a balancing act. And that's why I'm so passionate and why I went back to school, frankly, is I wanted to be better at identifying what are those opportunities within the workforce? What can we do better in supporting, um, no matter where a person is in their in their timeline with an organization, and and how can we identify those amazing mentors that are already there? I'm actually about to be mentored, and, and I feel like there's no age limit on that. I'm, I'm a part of the ATD chapter here in, in Florida, and I said yes, I want to mentor as I start to kind of navigate this new area of interest. So that's something that I think, like you said earlier, we can't we can't do any better. <laughs> we start to launch these new campaigns if we aren't first addressing how do we transition into that mindset? How do we transition into that training so that these otherwise stellar label, whatever development folks, advancement folks, salespeople, because some of them are, but how do we help them transition? And, and that is where the rubber meets the road, in my opinion. Well, so to kind of, pull back the curtain on what I think our opportunity is from the consulting posture. I mean, think about this really, think about this like that paper you're going to write or whatever. (laughs) I'm repeatedly saying here on the podcast that the fundraising profession is in the midst of its messy adolescence. What that also implies is that that those of us in these consulting roles are also in our messy adolescence because we're probably at best, we're just perhaps the, the more experienced, we've developed a certain level of expertise, et cetera, et cetera. But what if you've got a whole cohort of consultants out there that basically plateaued at the mastering the art of selling a sponsorship on the golf course, transitioned to a consulting role, and basically started teaching that stuff, right? Right. So, I mean, how many of us... And and, I, and honestly, I see uh, the, the reason we at Responsive use three lanes is because I see the first lane guilty of everything we're talking about. But I see also the third lane, which is the capital campaigns, being largely executed by a lot of our consulting friends, very transactionally as well. It's just simply done on a grander scale in terms of the size of the gifts. But there's this messy middle lane that we refer to that is the very place that caused that, that triggers that doubt, suspicion, all that ambiguity and complexity that you're sort of getting into where the world becomes messy and and, and, and unpredictable is the very place where your people basically landed. And it's the very place you needed them to just lean in and go. 
right. I love messy middle. I love that. And as a mom of a teenager, I really love that you're referring this to the world of we're all in the world of training adolescents, but in, in, in ourselves, we're adolescents. Yeah, I say, you know, as a parent, as a manager, you know, I always feel that everything is new. I'm learning all the time. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There is a space for this. And it's not something I ever years ago when I entered, uh, especially the nonprofit world, I never could have said this is what I see coming. You know, I don't think any of us knew. Um, but even now, it's interesting when you mentioned the three lanes, because I use that a lot um, with the company I'm working with now. We are, we are trying to identify really lanes for the different supporters we have. And yeah. that's why I witnessed once again some of that sense of, I don't know how to talk. To, I know how to talk in this one lane, but not in the other. And right. so, yeah, there's something to be said about that. And um, the leaning in is what I think is most important is this ability for all of us to lock arms, so to speak, and lean in and say, it's okay. It's going to feel a little unstable. It's going to feel messy as it should. I feel like any growth, if it doesn't feel that way, it's probably not going to grow. But, but that's my, you know, my cup is always at least half full. So (laughs) if you think about what's happening in these three lanes, so if you go back and you look at, uh, so I, I reference this stuff periodically because I put it in the forthcoming book. So Edward Hall in the 1950s and 60s was researching high context versus low context cultures. He was comparing the United States versus Japanese, the the Japanese that he was doing work over there. Um, And so he was spending a lot of time in Japan. And one of the things he's, He's basically talking about where the sense of predictability and control comes from when you're in a low context culture like we have here in the U.S. versus a high context culture like they have over in the in in Japan. And what you're describing, fundraising has been so conditioned on sort of this low context relationship. When you start developing high context relationships, like those very meaningful relationships we all relied on in the midst of the pandemic, right? where predictability and control comes from, comes from something else. It comes from, for example, a lot of nonverbal communication, for example. So the more you and I got get to know each other, for example, the more you would the more high context the relationship would become, and the more you would be able to anticipate my behavior without me actually explicitly telling you where I'm going to go. Does that make sense? It, it does. And you know, I think and that's where it. your don't, that's where your fundraisers weren't willing to go with their donors and they weren't, and it scared the jajibis out of them. Right. And that's exactly where we need them to go at a time when the world like falls apart, like in the midst of the pandemic. Yes. It, it forced us, I think all to, Really, I mean, this is so simplistic, but I think good things are simple. It just Mm -hmm. forces us to evaluate what matters at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. Does it matter (laughs) if, I'm going to use a terrible example, but I've seen it and we've done it in different places I've worked. You know, does it matter if we, uh, if we're doing like a, a naming campaign? Does it really matter if we get every single space sold and that number's hit that way, if we have another avenue to, to do this and, and mm-hmm. still create you know, opportunity to hit numbers if that's what we're focused on? And, and I, I mean, you know, yes, numbers at the end of the day, we all are held accountable, right? But I would love to see a shift in that focus, that it's not just the number, it's that relationship. And that's so hard, right? It's hard to quantify relationships. We can track meetings. We can track those kinds of things. 
But how do we quantify there, those high-level conversations you just mentioned and those, those connections? That's, that's tricky. And that's, I think, where the discomfort comes in. It's not as tangible or easy to prove. Like, yes, I had a meeting. How do you explain the context of that meeting? So that's a little side note, but I, I just think that yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's, I don't know that we're ever going to convince. So there's a general, you know, if you think about the last several generations of, of sort of management, you know, they've all been, they've basically been informed by 20th century management expertise that was all based on metrics and largely quantifiable metrics. And they haven't developed an intuitive sense of knowing that the relationship is going somewhere. Uh, This goes back to the woman, uh, Patricia Shaw, the book that I was reading. So one of the things she does with her clients is is she goes into the, she actually has to immerse herself in those conversations. So this is kind of like going back to the, uh, this is is basically you, what she's describing in her book is no different than you coaching this development officer when, when they're trying, when they, the deer in the headlights moment, and they don't know how to do that conversation with the donor at the lunch table or whatever, the coffee shop, what she describes in her book is that if you don't get into these high context environments with your clients, because this is this has required her to change the way that she does her consulting. If you don't get into the sort of the messy middle with your clients, you can't demonstrate to them where those places are to pick up signals that can actually be discerned and understood. Right. You know, you're, you, you've introduced yourself as an actress, for example. Act, act, actor, actress, an actor. I, susp- I suspect knows how to look at their colleague, the person acting on the stage with them. For example, knows how to look at body language and know where things are going in ways that are not explicit. Right? They're not yes. articulated. Necessary. You know if that person. You can look at that person's face and tell if they forgot their line. For example, can't you? Right. Well, it's the art of listening. And yeah, thank you for doing a shout out to the world of acting because it doesn't always get the credit. But and that was a long time ago in my life. But I will say that it, it, the skills gained from that have absolutely influenced my success in, in the nonprofit world because yeah. I learned how to listen. A lot of it's just listening skills. And that's another yes. category I think we touched on is how do you listen? And that's where I think the anxiety came from a lot of folks, even if some people I'm consulting with now, when we talked about what is your comfort zone, what is it that's making you feel nervous about XYZ conversation? And a lot of it is, I don't know what to talk about. I, and I said, well, maybe instead of thinking about what to talk about, think about how to listen and maybe start with a few questions. But what happens if you really just deeply listen to the, yeah. the other person across the table and I know we've all been guilty at some point in this where we're at the table. We're a little nervous, right? Let's be real. And I think there's another podcast where you're talking about conversation is the work. It is. Yeah. And if yeah. we forget that conversation is two-way, that's, I think, where we get into a little bit of that, that anxiety because we forget that it's not just me talking to or at worse at a donor, <laughs> but you know, forgetting that actually it's more important for me to listen and you have a few pieces to bring up, but listen. And that's where that relationship, you know, really takes off. But that, that's what I witnessed time. And again, it was just, I don't know what to talk about. If I can't talk about a product, if I can't talk about a sponsorship, if I can't talk about this new education program, then what do I do with this person across the table from me? 
And, and I see that. Really okay. That. Yeah. Okay. So that's the, that's the, um, we'll finish with this thought and, and you tell me what you think. So that's, that's where I to we've got lots of friends out there who say in our space that fundraising is like sales, but if you don't have anything to sell anymore and right. you've just got to be present with this person, You've got to right. be present with this person in a meaningful way. And there are other professions other than sales, the sales profession that do this better. You know, there's, you know, if you think about a, if you think about uh, really good physicians, really good attorneys, really good, you know, yes. even a really good accountant, for example, can probably sit there and be present and have a meaningful conversation in a way that perhaps will surface what they need to know in order to accurately in, in order to effect, effectively help their client, because that's kind of what you're doing there. When I'm sitting there across the lunch table with this donor, aspiring to get somewhere where I know I know they have no desire to even get there, I, I, I can't a I can't feel like an imposter, and b I've got to listen. And I don't know if my salesmanship necessarily skills, which I've met. I mean. My entire life, but I don't know if my sales skills are necessarily going to do me a whole lot of good right there. Um, right. Well, and it's funny you mentioned like the, the field of law. That's a perfect example of deep listening. I used to do consulting with the Florida Bar Association. So yeah, uh, but but yes, the skill set is the same there. It's if you really watch good trial attorneys, you will see that that two-way conversations two-way you know and the listening especially yes. during cross-examinations there's no better or ripe place to examine good listening skills and when to take the lead um, so absolutely I think you're right we just need to lean in a little more and again where we feel I always use the, the example of the edge when we're at that place where we meet a little that feeling of fight or flight then you're in yeah. a good spot when you're right there that's where some good stuff can happen. As long as you don't flee, <laughs> as long as you don't try to fight it, just be present with it. And these are people just like you and me when you're sitting at a table, but we somehow put other layers and levels onto that. And I think that's where otherwise excellent, excellent folks in the advancement field get a little hung up. Yeah, they, they scare themselves because – they they don't they never find out that these are living breathing human beings that yes they may have more money in their checking accounts but they have the same anxieties and uncertainties that every day that they wrestle with you know the the likelihood that their grandmother's going to you know she's struggling with cancer or something is ultimately going to affect them in many of the same ways it might affect you and me and we don't we never sort of we never sort of give them that humanity but at the same time, we never even afford ourselves that humanity because if I can't let the person on the other side of the table become a human being, in my mind, I never get to become a human being either. If I'm just selling that sponsorship day in and day out, right. I never experience what it means to be a human being much more. And again, that gets back to what conversation is really about. Right. If, if you and I followed a script here today, which I think we evidently didn't, <laughs> I feel much more after after 50 minutes of conversation, I feel far more human. And I suspect you do, too. Um, I think that's what's ultimately going to keep people in this work. I agree. And, and it's funny doing the acting analogy. You know, actors, yes, they have scripts. And so many people would ask me, how, how hard is it to learn your lines? And that's what's so funny is that. 
the lines in the script are so not the work and they are so not the story, frankly. It's like the skeleton, but really what we do is we 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 kind of build out the flesh when we have these kinds of conversations. If we get too hung up on those speaking points, which we do need, right? I mean, it's not that they're not helpful, but I think we need to think about the person across the table as no different from you or me and whether they have a different budget in their in their world versus me. Yeah. I definitely have been across the table from folks who are in a whole different tax bracket than me. But it doesn't matter because what matters is that we're having meaningful conversation, which is what this all comes back to full circle. So is it true? Is it true to say that memorizing the script isn't really what gets the actor or the actress her job? Am I right? Well, I mean, you have to, I mean, you have to honor the playwright's words, but frankly, I could sit in a room all day and memorize lines and I could give them to you. But what you're going to get, if you're my, my co-actor. Yeah. there's no interaction. <laughs> There's no yeah. connection. Yeah. Um, reading a word is reading a word. Yes. Reading a word with intent and understanding what the playwright wanted. And that goes back to the fundraising work. If we yeah. have a mission, that a greater mission that we are trying to achieve, that goes beyond speaking points around the mission. I could give yes. you speaking points, but it's yeah. what I exchange with you live, whether it's in person or via Zoom. Um, it's what we're exchanging that makes the story, that makes it meaningful. Fascinating. We could go there for another hour. Tammy, these are g- wonderful conversations. I'm gonna, You're certainly welcome back, but there's probably somebody out there who has been intrigued by this conversation. They probably, they know how to find me, but they might want to reach out to you. Um, how would you suggest that they do that? Sure. I'm going to confuse your listeners for a moment because I go by Tammy. That's my nickname. But on social, I am Tamarin. So you can best find me at LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn pretty actively. So Tamarin Digert, my LinkedIn profile. So find me there. I'd love to continue the conversation with anyone that's interested. Tammy, it has been a it has been a pleasure. Totally enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to the uncertainty of where it might go tomorrow, uh, in and in, in, in the future. Uh, in, yes. and thank you again for being our guest. You're always welcome back. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.